Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I love this conversation with Dr. Julia DeGangi. It is so important because we talk a lot about emotions on this show, and I think there's a lot of mystery to emotions and misunderstanding about emotions. And it seems like sometimes there's two camps. People are like, you got to feel it, got to feel all your emotions. And then there's, no, your, your mind creates your emotions. Just transform your beliefs and shift your state. And the conversation I have with Julia really shows us how much our emotions impact our brain, our behavior, everything, and how actually not avoiding any pain, not avoiding any emotional quote-unquote discomfort actually really serves us. And if you listen to me for many years, you know that I completely am on board with that. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Julia Deganchi. She is a neuropsychologist. She has nearly two decades of experience studying the connection between our brains and our behavior. She's worked with leaders at the White House, global companies, international NGOs, and the U.S. Special Forces. Her understanding of stress, trauma, and resilience is also informed by her work in international development and humanitarian aid, where she serves some of the world's most vulnerable communities. The founder of NeuroHealth Partners, a neuropsychology-based consultancy, Deganji shows people at work and at home how to harness the power of the brain to lead more satisfying and emotionally intelligent lives. Before we dive into my interview, I want to thank my sponsor for this week, Organifi. I mentioned this last time when I talked about Organifi, but if you don't know what to get somebody, get them some Organifi goodies. I mean, stuff that they will actually use. How many gifts have you given that you know people haven't used and how many gifts have you received that you haven't used? (laughs) So getting Organifi products that really help people with their health, with their well-being is a great gift. So go to Organifi.com, save 20% off by using promo code OVERIT. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, promo code OVERIT, or you can go to Organifi.com slash OVERIT. People will really love their gold blend. I love making turmeric lattes from their gold blend. There's also their most well-known product, the product that I think made them famous. They're famous in my mind. Their green juice blend tastes so good, gives you so many nutrients and stuff that's good for you (laughs) and red juice and their immunity. Put together a little gift basket for people you love and be like, here, my gift to you this year is health in a delicious, easy way. So again, go to Organifi.com slash over it or use promo code over it at checkout. All right. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Julia Deganji. Dr. Deganji, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Christine. I'm excited to have this conversation. So I read your bio before we dove into this conversation and you are a neuropsychologist. And I think people will understand what a psychologist is, but the term neuropsychologist isn't one that we hear often. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? I certainly can. Yes, it is definitely a term that's novel to a lot of people. It means I'm a clinical psychologist with specialized expertise in the brain. So I really study the way the brain affects our behavior. Mm. To me, that's like, how can you be a psychologist without studying the brain? Are you looking at it in a different way than traditional psychologists do? 
I mean, yeah. So we are very, so most technically a lot of neuropsychologists study, um, they do a lot of testing and assessment and will look at domains of cognitive Mm -hmm. function. So they will look at attention. They will look at memory. They will look at visual spatial processing, information processing, and then obviously how emotion can affect those domains. I myself have done a lot of research. So a lot of um, psychologists are just clinically focused. I have a very rich research background. So I did a lot of fMRI and EEG Mm -hmm. looking at how the brain responds to stress. So Mm -hmm. I'm happy to sort of get into the deep sort of academic details, but the way I sort of most I sort of describe my work the most is my work is really rooted in this intersection between the human brain, emotional pain and emotional power. And the Mm -hmm. reason that this is so important is that the, the fundamental currency or the fundamental energy that really drives the human experience, the human life is, is the energy of emotion. Hmm. Now, when I say emotion, I, I most classically, um, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm very published in the scientific literature. So when I say the term energy, I do not mean this metaphorically. I do not mean this metaphysically. I mean this quite literally and neurobiologically. Hmm. Your emotions are an energy, a neurologic energy that are communicating through your nervous system and driving behavior. And so I think what happens in our life is when we don't understand You know, I always say the brain is the most powerful machine that you will ever own, okay? We spend Mm -hmm. more time and more attention trying to figure out how to operate our cell phones or chat GPT than we pay to the intelligent handling of the most exquisite machine on the planet. Mm. So what happens to a lot of us is emotions, again, this sort of neuroelectrical energy is consistently communicating with us. Now, I think a really useful heuristic for thinking about this is emotions are like the Google Maps of your life, mm-hmm. okay? So they are telling you like, you're just kind of driving through your life and your emotions are like beep, 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 beep. At the next intersection, turn right and immediately leave the relationship. <laughs> or at the next intersection, please get off the highway and immediately find a new job. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's constantly signaling to us. And what most of us, unfortunately, are doing far too much is we're getting these really powerful, scientific, sacred messengers from our Google Maps, and we're entirely disregarding them. Mm, mm, Okay. So this is right up my alley because Uh one of the things that I've had heated conversations with among many people in the personal transformation industry is that is this whole thing about our thoughts create our emotions. And if you just change your thoughts and you just think differently, then you won't have the same emotions. And I have had, like I said, some not heated arguments, but just some debates around this because I really feel like sometimes thoughts create feelings. If I think about something I'm really worried about, I think that could create a physiological response of anxiety. And then I also think there's true emotion, energy and motion, something that my body or my, maybe maybe it's coming from my subconscious mind, but something that a thought isn't creating it. It's it's created from somewhere else. So I'd really love your perspective, not even your perspective, your knowing, your what your research has supported about where emotion comes from. And is it true that our thoughts create all our emotion? So from a scientific vantage point, the answer of, of course is no. So it's not that thoughts, no one, you know, one of the reasons I think any scientist loves studying the things that they study is because there's always mystery involved. Mm-hmm. So the truth about emotion is there is no perfectly agreed upon definition of emotion. 
Mm. which I think boggles some people's minds. It's like, there are so many cognitive and affective, affective is a more scientific term for emotion, human affective researchers. And so what we understand about the brain, and and this is kind of what I think is, you know, I I wrote a book recently called Energy Rising. And Mm. one of the pieces that I really sort of make this point is that we are in relationship with our emotions, okay? Mm. So we all know that, our emotions belong to us and yet how simultaneously somehow don't perfectly belong to us. So to have an intelligent relationship with emotions, we need to understand the ways that we can control them and the ways that we need to surrender to them. Mm. So in my work about emotional power, I talk about two levers of power. There is the lever of striving which is this idea of cognitive control. It's this idea of hustle. It's this idea of really thinking about my thoughts and planning my day and organizing organizing and achieving. And then for any of us who I think are are over the age of five years old, we understand that there are sometimes really painful events in our life that we would wish did not happen and sometimes really incredible things that are outside of our control. So we have to be able to both understand how to use thinking to harness some of our feeling, but we also know how to use the body to also process some of this. So I want to go back to this idea of of cognitive domain. So do emotions belong more to the affective systems of the brain or the cognitive systems of the brain? The answer is both. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the way human beings do anything, the way that we pay attention, the way that we remember things, the way that we solve problems, the ways that we make decisions, all of the parts of the brain that are involved in those things I just listed also involve emotional circuitry. Mm -hmm. So my point here is we can't think without emotion. We can't pay attention without emotion. We can't solve problems with emotion. So I almost feel like it's a, and I I don't want to confuse the conversation too much, but I I feel like it's a, it's a fault. I don't find the question I think it's incredibly scientifically useful, but I think when we're trying to solve problems in our life, I don't think that distinction matters. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we are trying to solve problems in our life, mm-hmm. what distinctions do matter? There we what go. What should we be focused on? So we have, I, in Energy Rising, I talk about this really, really powerful phenomenon that I call self-division. Self-division? So, self-division. Mm-hmm. Yes. This idea that I am dividing myself from myself. And I feel like, I I know your audience is all coaches. I think that this is such a powerful piece of the equation for human transformation. And they're not all coaches. They love coaching, but they're not all coaches. Okay, great. So (laughs) people that are interested in human behavior, let's say. Exactly, exactly. So what happens to a lot of us is we look around the world. We look around our homes. We look at people at our job, we look on social media, and we feel like there's plenty of stuff to aggravate us. There's plenty of stuff to frustrate us. There's plenty of stuff to break our hearts. There's plenty of stuff to make us feel unsafe. Now, I will mention to you that I have been in the business for, I feel like, depending on how you want to look at it, 20 to 40 some years. So I know yours isn't isn't a a visual podcast, but I'm, I'm... not basically I started doing this work in my childhood. And the reason is my father is also a psychologist. And so, you know, he was always talking about his work. And I think like a lot of us, I come from a very complicated family background. So 
my father, you know, kind of grew up on his textbooks talking about this stuff. So I think what happens is with the pandemic, with the rise of social media, there's all of this amazing attention now on these kind of psychological constructs. One of the things you hear people talking about a lot these days is this idea of psychological safety. Well, this is brilliant because there is no question that the brain needs to feel safe to really perform optimally. Mm. So a lot of us are saying, well, all the people out there are making me feel imperiled. They're, they're threatening me on some level. The things you're saying to me, the things you're doing to me, the things you said you would do, the things you're not doing. And this is all super valid. Most fundamentally, I, I'm, a tra- I'm a trauma and anxiety expert. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware that the world can do horrific things to us. But there's this really powerful piece of the equation that seems to be missing from far too many conversations. And it's this. How in the world could the world possibly be safe to me so long as I am willing to be dangerous to myself? Mm. Mm. Now, this comes back to the piece of emotion. And I want to talk about self-division. What tends to chronically happen to a lot of us is we divide our neurologic energy. So there's a a literal part of our neurologic energy that sustains our emotional systems. And there's a literal part of our, our biological energy that sustains our behavioral systems. Now, the most powerful person on the planet is the person who is integrating both the emotional, the cognitive, and the behavioral system, meaning I am moving all of my energy in the same direction. That's pretty logical, right? It's like Mm -hmm. if I have three engines, I would want those engines moving in the same direction as opposed to fighting against each other. Mm -hmm. But what happens to a lot of us in our life, and here's where the transformation comes, is I am feeling in one direction and then very consistently behaving in another direction. Let me give you some examples of this. I feel like I really want to speak up. Mm -hmm. There's something on my heart. There's something on my mind. Something doesn't feel right here. What do I do? I keep my mouth shut. So in that moment, I have divided the truth of my emotional energy from the truth of my behavioral energy. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling exhausted. Mm. I really need to rest, okay? The truth of my energy is saying I need rest. What do I behaviorally do? I overwork. I overgive. I overdeliver. I overcommunicate. I overfunction. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of very powerful, beautiful healing conversations about boundaries. Yes, yes. The next time someone asks me to do something, I'm going to say no. Mm. Great, that's how I feel. But when push comes to shove and and the moment of behaving comes, I say yes. Mm -hmm. So in each of those moments, I have quite literally divided myself from myself. Now, people love to say that emotions are so confusing. Emotions are not confusing. They are the most primitive, universal, native language of every single human being on the planet. They are the first language that we spoke. It's true. So what happens is... We don't like the fact it's difficult for us to say, oh my God, I really want to, I I really do. I really do feel like I want to speak up in this conversation, but I am afraid. Now, here's the other piece of my work. And again, all of this, I think is really, I think extraordinarily laid out in Energy Rising. I want to talk to you about this idea. And it's such a transformative idea of what I call picking a more powerful pain. Hmm. So. 
the the human brain we kind of all know i think on some level that it's it's evolved right and it's if you kind of think about limbic really early primitive systems of the brain you're looking at you know 150 to almost 300 million years old okay so you have the, these really sort of primitive reflexive parts of the brain well at the most basic level the human brain is wired to avoid distress so, for example, if I put my hand on a hot stove, I will instantly, without any conscious awareness, yank my hand away. And thank God, this is wildly adaptive. You know, sometimes I'll see these videos on social media where, like, you don't, there'll be like some, like a pedestrian walking on the side of the road. And, like, you don't, you're like watching the video and you don't even see the car coming. And yet, somehow, this person on the side of the road managed to, like, perfectly dive underneath the car. And you're like, if you tried to recreate that 2 mm. billion times, you would never be able to recreate that, right? So the brain is so wired for instantaneous reactions to survival. Again, wildly adaptive in a lot of circumstances. However, this is a really big point. When we think about the emotional pain in our lives, not getting hit by a car, not getting burned on a stove, because how many times have we been hit by a car in our life? Or people love to talk about, you know, the amygdala and like the fight or flight activating when we run from a lion. Like, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I haven't met a lot of people in this lifetime who've had to actually flee from a lion. Okay. So when we think about these moments of emotional pain in our life, there's always one thing that's true about them. They are nearly always chronic. Hmm. It is the one billionth time you've had the same fight with your spouse. It is the umpteenth time, teenth time that you've had the same conversation with your child today. You are frustrated or stressed out or anxious or made to feel inadequate. How many times a day, a week, a year on social media? right? It's the same frustrating situations at our job. So we have to be willing to say, okay, there's something about our emotional pain that is by definition chronic in nature, meaning it's repetitive. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about the one fight you had with your spouse in 1997, okay? Mm -hmm. We're talking about these like you know, in, in, I do a lot of work with couples and you'll you'll hear people say the couple has the same exact fight for 50 years, right? And this is not really an exaggeration because we get in these emotional patterns. Okay, so what, what is happening at this very kind of reactive level is the brain is always searching for the pain-free option. Mm. Now, if this was the reason I was called to psychology, the reason I was called to trauma is because I'm a, a very empathic, compassionate person. So some of the some of the circumstances that I help people navigate they are profoundly painful. So if I had a way for people to hit the easy button to get out of you better believe I would be like hitting the easy button. We all would. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't but have a job searching, but we all would. <laughs> exactly. But searching for the yeah. pain-free option is mm -hmm. literally like trying to find a house where there is no gravity. Mm -hmm. It's like you telling me like Hey, Julia, so I'm going to, I'm like looking for a new house and I want to live on the place on the planet where there's no gravity. I'd right. be like, Christine, I don't, I think that's going to be a lot of work and it's it's actually never going to work. Yeah. Like, could we just figure out how to deal with gravity? Yeah. So the choice before us is there is no pain-free option. And by pain, I do not mean, I want to be very clear. I do not mean extraordinary trauma. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, any feeling that you do not like, fear, yeah. anxiety, stress, overwhelm, inadequacy, doubt, disappointment, uncertainty, being angry. I mean, I could go on and on. There's probably thousands of synonyms. Right. So if it is impossible for me to, it's like going somewhere where there's no gravity or me only wanting to inhale and never have to exhale or finding the way to never age. It's like, mm-hmm. these are just Im- impossibilities. Right. And the truth is, and I'm happy to get into this, the more we seek, and this is this is a very important paradox, the more we seek the pain-free option, the more we actually injure ourselves. Mm. Yeah, so I'd love I you get into that a little more. I would, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Let me finish this piece, which is yeah. that if I really understand that pain is a phenomenon that is inextricable to the human condition, I get to ask myself, a very powerful, truly transformative question, which is this. In a world, in a life, in a particular situation where pain is inevitable, what pain is the pain that empowers me the most? Hmm. So let's go back to my example about having a hard conversation. So let's say, Christine, I got to talk to you about something and I it's, it's really bothering me. I feel like you're treating me unfairly. That's painful. Mm-hmm. Having to sit with the injustice, having to sit with my unprocessed emotion, having to sit with my frustration, having to sit with my sadness, that's pain. Mm-hmm. But when I go to talk to you, I also feel pain. I feel fear. I feel like you might reject me. I feel like you might misunderstand me. I feel like you might get mad at me. So before me, there's only pain. Mm-hmm. So if I can stop trying to run from it, because what happens is the the latter pain I mentioned, the one where you're going to get mad at me or you're going to reject me or you're going to misunderstand me, is the pain that has me shut down. And so it seemed like, okay, I, I lived another day where I didn't have to confront Christine and Christine didn't get mad at me. But the truth is, I now have to live with my self-division. I have to live with this, with the really, really profound realization. And I don't care how conscious it is or not. As a psychologist, you know, there's a, there's a part of conscious behavior we care about. And there's a part of unconscious behavior we also care deeply about. I know on an unconscious level that I am unsafe to myself. Mm-hmm. This situation doesn't feel good to me. This relationship doesn't feel good to me. The way you're talking doesn't feel good to me. And I refuse to advocate for myself. (laughs) In those moments, it does not matter if the whole world is safe to me because I know the person that is the most dangerous person in the room is me. Right, because you're not keeping yourself safe. You're not advocating for yourself. I I haven't really built that muscle. So when I start to see in a lot of these situations, running from pain does not actually save me from pain. It actually generates more pain. So the very, Mm -hmm. it's not even like, well... I guess I'll just kick the can. And it's kind of a pain-free kicking of the can. It's like, when I do this chronically, I weaken my own emotional system. Mm -hmm. And what does that do? Like unprocessed emotions, unspoken truth, harboring resentment, not taking care of ourselves. You know, I'd call all that repression. Mm -hmm. What does that do to our brain? Well, I think it, it, it creates a lot of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the reason I called energy rising, energy rising is because of this. So I thought so much about um, the title of the book. I sort of joke, I spent more time 
thinking of the name for my book than I did my own children. But part of that's because <laughs> I gestated the book much longer than my kids. But <laughs> the biology is brilliantly designed to get rid of waste. So mm-hmm. for example, when you eat food, your biology knows how to pass waste. When you take in oxygen, you release carbon dioxide waste. When you have foreign invaders, your body, your immune system ejects them. Every 27 days, your skin cells, they go away. Mm -hmm. So the biology knows what to do with trash. There seems to me, given the work that I do, to be something singular about our experience of emotional pain. Mm -hmm. We, instead of saying, whoa, I'm a little bit nervous to give this speech. Let me give it. I'm a little bit anxious to launch this business. Let me still, let me just be with the anxiety and let it pass through me. Let me be afraid to give the speech and let me kind of, you know, have that energy move through my body. What I want to have this conversation, but I'm a little bit scared. What we do with that, with that feelings, instead of just letting it pass naturally, we shove it down and Mm. we shove it down and we shove it down and we shove it down. And here's the thing. You want to shove it down one time, two times, a thousand times? No problem. The biology is quite resilient. But when we spend a lifetime, a lifetime trying to not allow the nervous system to do what the nervous system is literally designed to do, which is to process some affective emotional sensations, we become emotionally constipated. There's stuck energy. Yep. And the problem with being constipated, I don't think I have to go into this, but you're plugged up. Mm -hmm. So then you said, what is the consequence of not not processing the emotional energy? Well, the consequence is somebody gets my order wrong at Starbucks and I lose my marbles. Mm -hmm. Or my I have little kids and my little kids are a little bit squirrely in the car. And, you know, it's like they they kind of call it emotional collapse. They kind of hold themselves together at school and then they get with them parent who they feel safe with and they just fall apart. Well, if I'm healthy, if I'm kind of with myself that day, I know I I can show leadership. I can be the parent that they need me to be. But on the days when I'm, you know, all plugged up and my bandwidth is totally taken and I'm stewing and I'm ruminating and I'm, then I I'm snapping at my kids or I'm short with my husband or I'm trying to start a business on social media and I put out an offer and this is what, so I do work, I do a lot of work with leaders, a lot of work with entrepreneurs, a lot of work with founders. So sometimes people will come to me and I'm I'm not laughing at them. I'm laughing at all of us because we, we all do this. And so this is why I think it's so wonderful to have these conversations because we can really see ourselves in it, but they'll say like, so I I really had this beautiful idea, this beautiful program, let's say. I'm so excited to launch it. They, you know, they've been thinking about this for years. Okay, so they do it. I see them like next week or whatever. How'd it go? It was a disaster. Mm. Well, why was it a disaster? No one, everyone hated it. Nobody bought it. Mm. Oh, what do you mean? Like I, it was just a week ago. No one's bought it till today. No, no one's bought it. Oh my, okay, well, why not? Well, to be honest with you, it wasn't up for seven days. Okay, how long was it up for? 20 minutes. Nobody bought it in 20 minutes. And I just felt like I couldn't believe that people weren't responding. And so I took the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. So it's like my inability to sit with my exposure, which literally activates these, these neural networks that are responsible for pain and threat. So stress, fear, anxiety, right? This idea Mm. of like, I'm insufficient somehow, I'm inadequate. 
I can't sit with that sensation in my nervous system because I haven't really trained myself. So 20 minutes into the thing, I'm shutting the door on my own dream, not because my dream couldn't take flight, mm-hmm. but because I couldn't sit with the own my own sensations in my own body. Yeah, I love, this is such a huge one because, you know, one thing that many people bring up, especially entrepreneurs that I work with, is imposter syndrome. And one of the other things I do is I run a coaching institute and we train coaches and when they have all the training and they have the confidence and they have the skills, but when it comes to quote unquote, putting themselves out there, correct, that's correct. where a lot comes up. So let's talk about a little bit of this. Like, I love what you said about like, how do, how can we be with being exposed or being seen is, is what, what I, the word I use, but I love the exposed. Cause that even feels more, um, you know, rattling to the nervous system. So how can we be with that in a way that creates resilience, in a way that creates different neural networks in our brain so that we aren't killing our dreams before they even take flight? Yeah, right. Isn't that the and just think about how different the world would look. You know, I I when I I sort of really my work is rooted in emotion and relationships. Mm-hmm. So I how different would the world look? in terms of harmony, in terms of like, not these like throwaway cliches around peace, but just like this profound sense of peace externally in the world. If we could be different inside of our own bodies, Mm. I have two favorite quotes in the world. And one of them is from mother Teresa, which is if only we would sweep our own doorsteps, then the entire world would be clean. Mm. Well, I can only sweep my own doorstep to the ability that I'm willing to tolerate the shit on my doorstep. Mm. So I have to come into a new, a new capacity, a new capacity with the sensations in my own body. So this is the entire premise of energy rising. And one of the things I think is really quite great about energy rising is it is so practical. There's exercise after exercise after exercise, Mm. but I will talk about one now. Okay, great. So I I have this thing that I call hold your emotional shake. Now, what's lovely about this is that we have a beautiful, beautiful analog that everyone gets instantaneously, which is physical health, which is physical strength. So if I want to get physically stronger, I am never confused about this. Like no one in this in 2023 is like so... I really want to get stronger. I want to build more endurance. I'm going to actually binge watch Selling Sunset and eat a lot of hot Cheetos. Right. Now, there might be days I don't want to go for a walk or I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to go for a run, but I'm not confused. I'm not like, you know what I should do? I should avoid the gym more and just eat more Cool Ranch Doritos. No, I'm like, I, I have to work that out somehow, okay? Then on the days I go for exertion, I go to the gym, I literally shake. I sweat. My heart pounds. My muscles legitimately quiver. Mm -hmm. And never in the history of going to the gym has someone fled the gym and said, this is a disaster. My muscles are shaking. In fact, a lot of us who, when we go for a workout, we like it. We Mm -hmm. like the sweat. We like the muscle shaking and we don't actually like the sensation. It's quite uncomfortable, but the shaking is itself the clearest somatic evidence of my increasing strength. In other words, I'm not going to go for, I mean, if I go for a leisurely walk, that's fine. But if I'm not going to get my heart rate up, it's not really, it's not doing what I, I want it to do. Right. 
it is precisely the same on the on the mental strength side on the emotion what i call emotional power if you do not shake you will not get stronger and and this is the piece of this is why i'm so willing to do podcasts like this this is why i i wrote energy rising is there is confusion so let me just go to this kind of real simple and i'm happy to make it put it in more complex models if you want me to but if i have to publicly speak and I start to shake, like if I'm like, oh God, I got to give a uh, a TED talk or I got to go on a podcast like this, or I'm mm-hmm. going to give a Facebook live or whatever. And, and I think about that and I start to think, oh no, I'm, I'm going to get really anxious. There's, there's plenty of us because we're, we don't, we haven't really been trained on how our nervous systems work that will think that that is a true sign of danger. Mm. It is not a sign of danger. It is quite the opposite. It is the sign of your increasing resilience. We have got to learn the difference between danger and dislike. Oh, I love that. Because you do not like something has nothing to do with if it is dangerous or not. Yep. That's so true. That's so true. So Um, we shut down our dreams because we don't like the sensation in our body that is literally the energy that is here to carry us to our dreams. Oh, the yeah. premise of energy rising is this. Yeah. That these horrible feelings, this this is such an important piece and it is the message I'm on this planet to deliver. These horrible feelings that we spend our entire lifetime trying to flee from. Anxiety, fear, doubt, uncertainty are not here to torment us. They are here to lead us home. Yep. If I want greater self-confidence, I must come into contact with the energy of doubt. When I come into contact with the energy of doubt, I will shake. If mm-hmm. I want greater peace, I must come into ener- into contact with the energy of uncertainty. And when I feel the, the thing of uncertainty, I will shake. And that shake will feel like fear, will feel like doubts. It will feel like, what if this... And if in that moment I abort mission, I will go back to the very life I already decided was not working for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. And in these moments, we become dangerous to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and potentially to others if we don't, you know, process our own emotions and Correct. move forward in our life. So where this, where I hear my listeners' questions coming up is how trauma factors into this, because I I mean, I'm not going to say it as well as you are or or can, because I'm not a neuroscientist, but the best way I can simplify this question is a lot of people have very traumatic things that happen in childhood and they can go into a situation that isn't their father beating them, but feels like that intense. Yes. And they will have a nervous system response, a brain response, as if they're in trauma again. So how do we distinguish between, okay, I need to embrace the shake, push through the shake, take flight versus, oh, wow, like I'm really triggered. I'm actually having a traumatic response. Is there, can you distinguish between the two? Absolutely. I mean, we could talk, we could talk about this for So (laughs) let me try to, I'm going to tell a story really quickly. And then um, I'm happy to follow up because there's just so many things to be said about this. So one of the things that 
is I think a very, so if I had one word to describe my work, it would probably be either opposite or counterintuitive. It's like, because the brain is a pattern detection machine, and I go into more detail on that in Energy Rising, but the, the pattern is always going to think the, the thing that feels like the next thing in the pattern should be the thing. But the problem is a lot of times when we're running pain patterns, we have got to do the opposite in order to break us out of the cycle. But in the doing of the opposite, in the doing of the counterintuitive, the brain is like, wait a second, that's the wrong thing that comes next. Don't do that. I don't, I don't recognize it. So then what is unfamiliar, the brain tries to tell you that could be dangerous, but again, could be dangerous is not danger. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this is, I think, one of the most difficult pieces I, I treat. Um, so I do a lot of work with, with, like I mentioned, leaders, but I also um, treat patients and I treat anxiety, PTSD is an anxiety disorder, OCD, phobia, panic, accommodation. This, this is the piece that, you know, and I, let me just tell you, so I, I came to the field because I, I, um, I'm deeply empathic. There was a lot of trauma in my family. I, and mm. we, you know, I think a lot of us come to the work we do for a lot of personal, personal reasons. reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So me too. as a, as a young, you know, clinician in training, the idea that accommodation of the anxiety, of accommodation of the fear, accommodation of the anxiety would be, would not help people get better was foreign to me. In other words, I would have listened to you for a hundred years, talk about the same thing, if that's what you thought you needed to do. But what the scientific literature tells us very clearly is that when we don't confront our pain, the pain actually gets worse. That is, that is very counterintuitive. Yeah. Okay. It's very intuitive. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Well, that's good. Well, and I think to be honest, it's probably very intuitive to you because you were called to this line of work. But I think like, I think a lot of us are like, don't touch that thing. It doesn't feel good. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, time heals all wounds is one of my least favorite things that people say ever. Well, that's good. And also to get into the neuroscience of that, the reason you are correct when you say that is because linear time is quite literally held in a different part of the brain than a lot of the emotions that we are talking about. So this is exactly why you can walk into a room and let's say you hear a certain song on the radio or you smell a certain scent or you remember a very good memory in your life or you remember a very bad memory in your life and it is like time no longer exists, right? It is because memories that are coded, people think the amygdala is really about fear. The amygdala is really about emotional emotional encoding and emotional learning. Mm. So whenever there's a very emotionally salient event, good or bad, you will be, it it becomes timeless because it's stored in these subcortical regions. I'm probably getting too technical, but it's stored in these parts of the brain that are, are kind of distinct from where the brain understands time. So you are exactly right that the mere passage of time will absolutely by itself likely not be corrective. Yeah. 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 And I think so many people just think, oh, that happened so long ago. That was so far away in my past. Why does it matter? And I'm like, well, the fact that your mom died when you were three and you haven't really grieved that is impacting why you haven't been able to have a close relationship in your life. You know, there's 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 so much um, that that happens when we don't honor. And I really like to use that word honor because to me, looking at the things that have been hard in our life, the things that have been traumatic, 
and really giving them that the time and attention they deserve is really indulge is honoring our life experiencing and honoring our emotions and honoring our heart and honoring our mind, not indulging in our pain, which is what I think a lot of the the information back in the past was, was like, oh, just get over it. Or like, if it doesn't feel good, don't focus on it. And to me, that's very dishonoring and it's very disempowering to ignore those things. And we will never tap into our full potential if we're not looking at things that have caused us pain in the past. So I, I love every, I love your mission. I love everything that you're talking about. Um, I, I, there's another thing I wanted to, to ask you about, because I think when people hear of trauma responses, um, they think of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, but you mm-hmm. say there are five defense responses, not, not three or four. What's the fifth? Yeah. And they're all, they're all, you know, most things are not really categorical. They're all kind of spectrumy. And so yeah, yeah. And they're on these continuum. So the fifth one that I see a lot, and I, I work, like I said, with leaders. So lots of really high performers, high achievers is what I call fall apart. Mm. And it's this idea that like, if it is not a precise 10 out of 10, it is a categorical disaster. And mm-hmm. even though I might even be able to self-talk a little bit like, oh, well, I understand like you can't, you know, always get 10 out of 10. My my body feels like this is some kind of spiritual death. Mm. So, you know, the I, like I, I could have, I have a lot of stories about this, but I have people that, I mean, you probably have a million examples from, you know, the, all your work. Oh, I but, can give you an example so I, from my personal life. Tell me if this has been an example. So I, I've grown out of this, but something will happen and I, I won't do something how I wanted to. I, I wrote a book called Expectation Hangover, which is all about things not going our way and yeah. not meeting our expectations and how that that disappointment is actually a huge growth opportunity if we leverage it. So my thing was if I didn't, if things didn't go a certain way, if I didn't achieve, did, didn't do it like I thought I should, um, then yeah, I would go into this hypervigilant response, Correct. which to me is a trauma response. So would that fit into this category? Brilliantly, brilliantly. And it's like the, the then, cause life is not of course binary, but what happens to a lot of people who are perfectionists is if it's not perfect, it's horrible. Right. So I can tolerate my, and I'm horrible. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. I'm horrible. So if if you think about like, I almost like to map it out. It's like if life is a dartboard, right? And like, you could live, like, let's just imagine like a map of the United States. And it's like, you could live here, you could live here, you could live here. But perfectionism is like literally like Omaha. And you have to throw a dart. And if you don't hit Omaha on the dart, like it's it's over. So what starts to happen, and, and I see this happen all the time in my work. And like, to be transparent, like this, I'm getting better and better at it. And it sounds like you're maybe are in recovery too, but (laughs) it's like, you start to be like, if I, if I move one inch to the left, Mm -hmm. it's, I'm going to fall off this pedestal. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing really great with it until I had a baby. (laughs) And it was like, all the, like, I need to do it perfectly stuff came up and I had a whole nother deeper cut at this. But I love that you have identified this one because I think it's one so many of us can relate to and falling apart can look different. So some people may think falling apart is I'm on the floor, I can't move, but it's like what sends us into a trauma response and, and they can look different. And my for sure one 
is that hypervigilance, that ruminating, that, you know, trying to correct it, all that kind of stuff. So this is, if, if, if people as someone who's recovering from this as well, what is a way that we can work with this defensive response and start to heal it or shift it? Well, and, you know, I think even too, just to give another one, it's like, I think for a lot of people around the holidays, the idea that it has to be like perfect and we have to make the cookies sure. and we have to go to the zoo lights and we have to like, the tree's got to look good and the picture's got to look good. It's like, if, if I miss one of those things, it's like somehow I ruined Christmas. Yeah. So again, it's this very, and then what happens in this, when we're in this state, I like your term of like this hyper arousal or hyper vigilance in a way, yeah. it's like the whole, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, because if I'm running around like that, just with that level of intensity, I'm not having a good time. <laughs> like right. no, no one is having fun. Right. And then, so if I relax, I, that's also a disaster. And I think, again, another counterintuitive thing for a lot of people to realize is until you train the nervous system to, to have the capacity to hold rest, rest will feel like pain. Hmm. Hmm. That's so true. And rest will feel like I'm not productive. I don't matter. I'm going to lose my worth in the world. All those things, which correct. like you said, that is pain. Exactly correct. But I do oh. want to go back because I, I really think that this can be such, especially if there are people out there who are trying to heal from trauma. So the, you know, the most evidence-based protocols are something called prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy. So CPT, CBT mm-hmm. is, is not what I'm referring to here. And then, you know, some people have heard of, I think the most popular one is EMDR. PE and CPT have a little bit more of an evidence base. So they're a little bit more empirically supported at this stage. <clears throat> but the idea here is that, um, and I'll tell a quick story. I also tell this story at Energy Rising. I did a lot of work with combat veterans. So mm. working with a lot of trauma, obviously a lot of combat trauma, a lot of, you know, both they have both civilian and combat trauma. So someone comes to see me and they had been back from deployment for many, 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 many years. So to go to your point, time does not heal all wounds. So this person comes to see me and says, okay, my life is now unmanageable. And I say, tell me what you've been doing. And so he says, I have been in a word avoiding. I don't go anywhere. I don't drive. His trauma happened in the context of a convoy. I don't go to restaurants. I don't go to movies. I don't work because a symptom of PTSD is anger. So I'm kind of getting in altercations with people. He was estranged from his family. So he's like, my work, my life is not working for me. Mm. So no matter how much I try to outrun it or avoid it, I can't because the the memory of the trauma, and that's something people need to, I think we understand as soon as it's said, the trauma is over, but the memory of the trauma is it's being played out pretty consistently in the nervous system. So I say, well, I have great news. We have a lot of evidence-based treatments for this. And this says to do the opposite of what you've been doing. In other words, we're going to talk about your trauma in detail. And we're going to talk about it over and over again. And we also have patients record themselves telling their trauma narrative on their phone. And they go home and they listen to it. And then so, so it's this idea of constantly, it's, it's so counterintuitive because I yeah. just told you I engineered my life, try to get away from this thing. And you're now saying like, expose me to it and expose me to it and expose me to it. So, you know, it sounds like a terrible idea. I, I mean, right. who among us would like it? Right. But the thing that, and this is why, you know, I think the the people that I work with are also so brave. They're like, kind of like, 
And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because yeah. on some level, I can't live like this. On some level, what you're saying is really making sense. On some level, I trust the scientific literature. On some level, I trust you. And, and I'm, most importantly, I trust myself. You know, the patients are always in charge of their own treatment, really. I mean, you you see, like, I, I'm with them, but they're adults and they get to decide how they want to participate in it. Yeah. So the, the most powerful piece of the story is actually that he's been living this way for many, many, many years. And he could have lived this way for a lifetime. But at week 12, 12 weeks, he comes into my office and I'm talking about extreme combat trauma. And he Mm. says, Doc, I can't listen to this thing anymore. He kind of Wow, yeah. And I say, okay, well, like, tell me what's going on. Sit down, let's talk about it. And he says, every time I listen to this recording, I fall asleep. Mm. It is dull as shit. (laughs) So this trauma that had literally tormented him is now so boring it lulls him to sleep. Wow. What people don't realize is there's a couple of things about, I think it's so amazing that we're having all these great conversations about trauma, but I do feel like there's a couple of key pieces missing from the conversation, which can help a lot. Trauma is not what it did to us. The real scourge of trauma is what it does to us. Mm. So it's this idea that I wasn't safe then. I will never be safe again. It's this relationship that I couldn't trust people. This idea that I couldn't trust people. Then I can never have a relationship again. It's this idea that life was unkind to me. Then life will will, will never work out for me again. Mm. The trauma is not. So I should, to be more technical, trauma And people, I think, are surprised to hear this. Again, kind of an counterintuitive piece. Trauma is not pathology. So Mm -hmm. just like I could fall down and cut my leg open and, you know, skin my knee, and then I could just let it heal. So if you look at the epidemiological research, most people have experienced trauma and most people will do what we call naturally recover. Mm -hmm. So when trauma gets pathological, it's because there there has not been a recovery after injury. So trauma is the injury. And, you know, obviously we want to prevent injury as much as possible, but life is hard and and the human body and the human spirit is resilient. So then there's other questions about who gets sick after injury and why do they get sick and how can we help them, right? So these are, we got to be, if if we're really interested in trauma, we got to make these um, kind of clarifications. So then I start asking myself, well, what happens when, when we get pathology after trauma is the experience of the trauma keeps getting played out in the nervous system. Mm. I can't drive in Boston or I can't drive in Chicago or I can't drive in Philadelphia because it was dangerous to drive overseas. Mm. I can't trust men because there were some men in my life who, who were very dangerous. I can't trust women because, right? So it's like I I am recreating the experience where the experience of the energy that is presently held in my brain and my nervous system. Mm. Makes so much sense. So the reason we think that trauma therapies work is because it is quite literally reorganizing these neural networks. So here's the other piece of trauma that people miss all the time. Trauma, no, and this, this, 
in order for it to be traumatic, it has to be confusing. Right. Right. Nobody talks about confusion in the context of trauma. So you, if you say that was a really horrible thing and it makes perfect sense that it happened. Perfect. I totally get it. You will not be traumatized. Mm. Mm. There is always the sense in trauma of what in the world, what in the world just happened? How could you do this to me? How could you have cheated on me? How could you have abandoned me? How could you have hit me? How could, how, I don't get it. Make it make sense. Yeah. So one of the states that the human brain absolutely hates is the affective state of confusion. Yeah. So when we go into good therapy or we work with good coaches or we get good health, self-help books, and most of us do a, you know, uh, a lot of these things, we start to reorganize the, the trauma, the way it's encoded in our memory in a way where it starts to make sense, not sense like it was okay. Not even sense like I can understand why my father did that to me. Yeah. But this sense of even there, there's a difference between traumatic confusion and I will never understand why that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. I, I think I'm going to have to have you back on the show because I have so much more questions and I want to dive deeper into trauma if you're willing, sure. um, because I feel like we're just opening up a whole can of worms that I really want to unpack more, more deeply with you. So this has just been so, this has been so helpful. And I think such a good amount for people to digest. And then maybe in a couple months, we'll have you back on if you're willing. Um, I would be willing. I'm happy okay. to talk about it. Awesome. That would be great. Thank you so much. So Energy Rising is your new book. It came out a couple months ago. It's beautiful. It's such a cool cover. It like looks like neurons and it looks like stars and it looks spiritual and clinical. So awesome cover. <laughs> well, I, I take no credit for that. That is the talented illustrators at Harvard <laughs> Business Review. So I know well, they did a great job. And the, the title, I'll give you full credit for. It's a beautiful title. People can get this book, I'm sure on Amazon and all over. And where else can they connect with you if they're interested in working with you or learning more about your work? Absolutely. So I, you can find me at my website at doctor, that's drjuliadeganji.com. And then I'm on Instagram at drjuliadeganji, LinkedIn, drjuliadeganji, and Facebook. I'm just Julia Deganji. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for taking your own trauma, your own challenges and making it into a mission that helps and inspires so many people. I have great respect for that. Thank you so much, Christine. I too appreciate your work.